Well, let's now turn our attention to the Word of God. It's great to be able to fellowship and say hi to one another, and we'll be able to continue with that fellowship after the service. And I just want to say that that was a wonderful set of songs that we just sang. I mean, these are the songs of the saints, are they not? This is what gives us hope, joy, and even if we come here today struggling with something, we have a hope that no one can remove from us that we have in Jesus Christ. And now we go to the word of hope, so I invite you to open up your Bible, your copy of God's word, and let's turn to 1 Timothy, the letter to Timothy written by Paul. And we are continuing our study in this very, very critical and important letter Paul is writing to Timothy, his protege in the faith, his young son in the faith. And it's incredibly important that we as a church understand how the church ought to conduct itself, what the church should believe. And the title of today's sermon, as you see on your bulletin, is Conduct and Confession in the Household of God. Conduct and confession in the household of God. And this is part one of part two, and we will continue with this passage, verses 14 to 16 in 1 Timothy 3 next week. Today we are going to be primarily focusing on verses 14 and 15, and then we will conclude this section next week with verse 16. So let's go ahead and read this passage, these three verses, 14 to 16. Paul says, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Verse 16 By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that these things were written to us so that we may, as the household of God, as the church of the living God, we may know how to live, act, behave, believe, what doctrine and theology we ought to firmly hold to, for your word explains it to us. And we are thankful that we have a copy of the Bible in our hands. So Lord, as we study these couple verses this morning, Would you help us? Would you open up, enlighten our minds, our understandings, and give us the grace to be able to put these things into practice as the church of God, the church that Jesus Christ shed his blood for? We thank you for this time, Lord. Help me to proclaim your word with truth and with guidance of your spirit, and help all of us to that end and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, today we are going to look at the heart, the fulcrum point, the primary purpose of this letter written by Paul to Timothy. 
Now, you would think as you start this letter in chapter 1 at verse 1 that Paul would have stated his thesis, if you will, at the beginning of the letter, but rather what he does, as he does also with some other letters in the New Testament, he jumps right into a very important matter in terms of false teaching in the church that Timothy needs to handle with care as a pastor of the church in Ephesus. And then for reasons known only to the Holy Spirit, Paul gives us the purpose statement of the letter right at the end of chapter 4 in verses 14 and 15. He says, I write these things so that Paul provides the cause, the reason for why he wrote this letter to Timothy and by extension to the rest of the church in Ephesus. Simple enough, right? Now, some might skip over these verses as if they were incidental and not that important, but that would be the wrong thing to do. For this brief section of Paul's letter is absolutely profound and speaks volumes about the church, its manner, its message, its conduct, its confession. Today, if you want to know more about what and who and why the church exists, this succinct, this concise and tightly packed couple of verses provides that content. Now, as we look across the spiritual landscape of America, we can come to see that many, many churches are deeply confused about what the church is, who it belongs to, uh, what its mission is, what the message of the church really is. We don't, you don't, I don't need to be confused. We don't need to cross land and sea to try to figure out what the message and purpose and focus of the church is. We don't have to scratch our heads trying to come up with new fads or novel messages for the church. Why is that? Well, the Bible tells us, does it not? The Bible tells us the message and the mission of the church, and today we'll be exploring that in verses 14 and 15 and next week, verse 16. Next week is going to be glorious, not that today isn't, but next week we're going to look at the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the primary thrust and message and, and proclamation of the church of Jesus Christ. It's really a beautiful hymn of the first church, and so I'm looking forward to that as well. But today we will be looking at two defining characteristics two defining characteristics of the church from verses 14 and 15. The number one defining characteristic that we're going to spend time in is, and I believe this is one of the most important aspects of this passage that we have to look at first before we get to the conduct of the church. And that is, number one, the church is God's household. The church is God's household. And number two, because the church is God's household, the church must know how to conduct itself as members of God's household. Let's start with the number one, 
the first distinction regarding the church of the living God. We must start here. We must understand who the church belongs to. We have to understand who died for the church. We must know to whom we belong before we know how to act. In verse 14, Paul says, I am writing these things to you, to Timothy, but also to the entire church, hoping to come to you before long. Now we see here Paul's, his pastoral heart, his unwavering commitment to the church. Paul loved the church. We read in Corinthians that above all of the other, in, in addition to all the other things that he suffered and went through as an apostle, above all of that, and in addition to that, he had deep concern for the church, for the churches. And he also had an unwavering commitment to his young disciple, Timothy, who was a young man who was told by Paul to remain back in Ephesus to put these things in order, to, to address the false doctrines in the church, to inform and teach and instruct and urge the church to live in such a way that comports with their new life in Jesus Christ. Now, Paul was not able to be with Timothy at this time. He was not able to be with the church in Ephesus personally in, in the flesh, but he desired to. He said that he hoped to come to Timothy before long. That was his hope. This was, this was Paul's hope oftentimes. You see, it when he wrote the book to the Romans, he desired to be with them and that he would stop by and on his way to Spain so that he could encourage their faith and vice versa. He desired to be with them. But as Paul said in chapter 1 of verse 3, he says, As I urged you, Timothy, upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Paul was in Macedonia writing this letter to Timothy who was in Ephesus. Now as you read this, this is a very personal letter and yet deals with the entire church. In fact, at the end of 1 Timothy, when Paul says, grace be with you, that word you is in the plural. He is encompassing everybody in the church at Ephesus. And he's talking about how the church ought to behave and believe as those saved by the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. The manner in which they are to live as God's church according to what God approves as members of God's household conduct, confession, and so forth. Over and over in this letter, you will see that Paul, this is how important it is to, to get this right. Paul urges, he instructs, he commands, he entrusts Timothy to teach, and not only to instruct and teach and inform, but to put these things into practice. Shepherding a local church is serious business. And Paul is reminding Timothy not to shirk his pastoral responsibilities as a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And of course, as Paul says in verse 5 of chapter 1, to do so with love from a pure heart 
and a good conscience and an unhypocritical faith. You're not a leader who is exerting power over your people. You're doing so as a loving shepherd who cares deeply about the church for whom Christ died. Now, to put more of this into context, Timothy was pastoring for a certain amount of time the church that Paul warned about in Acts chapter 20. When Paul was on his journey, leaving, he called the Ephesus, the Ephesian elders to himself so he could wish them farewell and give them instructions and pray with them. And this is that church that Timothy is in. And Paul, in Acts 20, warned those elders at that time that savage wolves would rise from among them. And sure enough, those savage wolves were in the church. We see that in chapter 4 of 1 Timothy. He says, but the Spirit explicitly says, verse 1 of chapter 4, that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. We see again in verse 3 of chapter 1 that, that Paul is telling Timothy to instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Timothy had to deal with this issue in an urgent fashion and with pastoral care. Thankfully, Timothy's mentor in the faith, who was still alive at this time, uh, took it very seriously to instruct, warn, teach, command, serve, shepherd, persevere, and fight the good fight of the faith. To do the work of the ministry, Timothy. To remind people, Timothy, of the truth and the true nature of the church, which is to live as God's redeemed people, which is to preach the truth, which is to be people of the truth. And again, especially as false teachers were making threatening advances into this local Ephesian church. And while this happened close to 2,000 years ago, we can't be naive to think that this can't happen to this local church as well, that false teachers could arise, that false doctrines could infiltrate, and as the pastors, elders, leaders, people of the truth, people of the church, we must guard and defend and look out for these things so that the church of God would remain pure. And so again, verse 15 and 16, Paul tells Timothy why he wrote this letter. And again, to remind us all, it's for this very, very reason. How Christians are to conduct themselves as the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Basically, Paul is telling Timothy, make sure that the church gets back on its feet. It's not the last time Ephesus will be acknowledged and talked about. Revelation chapter 2, Jesus will be talking about the fact that the Ephesians have lost their first love. And so this is a church that was deeply troubled at times and needed to be realigned to the truth of God according to the truth as God's church. Now this section in, in, in 1 Timothy 3 is essential regarding ecclesiology, 
right? What is ecclesiology? A big word which simply means just the theology or teaching or understanding of the church. Paul's instruction is that the church believes and lives a certain way. Belief and living, doctrine and life go hand in hand. But this is what's important. It's the way God determines what they believe and how they live because this is his church. This is his household. Paul is not suggesting here some moralism or legalistic living, but really how born-again, saved-by-grace Christians ought to live, how they ought to act, and how they ought to think as members of God's church so that they would live as God intended them to live and, and to also live so that the rest of the world would take notice and be able to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, to hear the truth and to know what the truth is and to know what it looks like to live out the truth contained in the word of truth. And, and what Paul is writing here needed to be implemented now Right away. He was writing to Timothy and expected him in the church to put these things into practice right away. Especially since false teachers were subverting the truth. There was a danger at hand here. Again, as Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, he tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, this is God's church. In fact, if you haven't already, go to Acts 20 and let's remind ourselves another critical portion of Scripture talking about ecclesiology, talking about the church. Acts 20, starting at verse 28, and we'll read to 32. Paul, talking to the Ephesian elders, probably with tears, said, Be on guard for yourselves. And for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Listen to this section. To shepherd the church of who? Of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Verse 31, therefore be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I mean, that's a passage in its own that we could spend a whole hour on. But the thing I want us to realize here is that this church consists of the people that God purchased with his own blood through the blood of his precious son, Jesus Christ. And, as, and Timothy, as a shepherd of God's church amongst him, must shepherd it according to God's truth. Paul directed them to the, to the word which is able to build them up and sancti sanctify them. And it must be taken with utmost gravity because God's church must be shepherded and managed and overseen faithfully and seriously. And this is what I want to zero in on right now, okay? Notice verse 15 back in 1 Timothy chapter 3. 
verse 15, he says that I write to you so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. I want to focus on household of God. The church is the household of God. And then he goes on in verse 15. It's the church of, that word of, O-F, is very important, of the living God. This church about which Paul speaks is not the church of Paul. It's not the church of Timothy. It's not the church of Peter or of Apollos. As a pastor here at Grace Community Fellowship, this is not the church of Michael. For the elders and the deacons, this is not the church of theirs. This isn't our church in the sense that we determine doctrine, conduct, or leadership. God does. It's his church. We as ambassadors who represent God implement, teach, and uphold and defend those things already revealed to us by God in his word. But we are not the determiners, the creators, the source of truth. We are proclaimers. We are stewards of already established truth given to us in God's word. God is the master architect of the church. What did Jesus say in Matthew 16? I will build my church. I will build my church. Whose church? Christ's church. Whose church? God's church. Now, yes, to make sure I'm not murking the waters here in any way, we can say this is our local church. Uh, If we mean that we are members and we attend this local body and are a part of this church and serve and pray and come under the loving leadership of the shepherds of this church. But a denomination, Rome, a pope, a high-powered, high-ranking individual, a cult leader, they do not define the purpose, the function, the leadership, or theology of the church. Who does? God does. His word does. We don't need to go on some kind of quest or seek growth, church growth experts, as helpful as they can be at times, to understand what the church is, who the church is, who the head of the church is, what the church ought to believe and behave, because it's all contained in the word of God, because the church belongs to the living God, who, as Acts 20, 28 says, shed his blood for the church. He purchased you and me with his blood. He shed his blood on the cross so that he might call to himself His church, his bride, which is his body. He is the possessor of the church. He is its redeemer, its savior, its Lord, its head, its authority. He is the singular being, no one else, who died for us so that you and I can be members of his church, his household. When I was living, when we were living in Wisconsin, there was a church in southern Wisconsin that we would drive by, and it was a massive church. It was one of these really, really big ones. And they had a big sign, of course, with their church name, but under it, their motto was, 
a different way to do church. Really? A different way to do church? My initial question is, as I'm sure as you hear that, is a different way than what? A different way than what? A different way than what God's word says? I hope not. And sadly, there are innumerable churches that are doing God's church any other way but God's way because they think, well, this is, this is kind of old and traditional, this word. It's kind of boring, which it's not at all. But they think they can define, determine, and dictate what the church is, does, and believes. But that can't be. Paul is as clear as glass here that the church is God's. It's the household of God. And not only that, Paul goes on. Repetition is important. He says in verse 15, it's the household of God which is the church of the living God. He uses that word living. He's hearkening back to an Old Testament idea that is used frequently where Old Testament writers talk about the living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is not a dead God. He's not an impotent God. He's a God who is alive forever and is the eternal God and the everlasting God. He is not someone in the upper echelons of ecclesiastical hierarchy who says, this is my church. The church does not belong to a false dead idol like there were in Paul's day. There was a plethora of idols and dead gods during that time, but Paul is contrasting that and saying, this church, this temple, this household belongs to the living God. As Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17, Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. There is no other God and there is no other church. There is no other true church of saints who have been called out and redeemed by the one true living God. And because God is living and not dead and not powerless, we must realize that the church that we are a part of is not some kind of lifeless institution or club. The church is a living organism. It's made up of resurrected people who are once dead in their trespasses and sins but have been made alive by the living God and now live resurrected lives made alive to God. He is the God of this church. He will not allow his church to be destroyed, to be tampered with. Jesus said after he said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not come against it. Why is that? Because his spirit dwells in his church. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 16 to 17, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are, holy. Spirit of God dwells in us. It's his church. 
When I lived in New York City, I worked for a massive CD store, record company. I know some of you are thinking, what are CDs? <laughs> Everything is digital now. But it was enormous. It took up a couple city blocks in, in Union Square, Manhattan. They sold almost every CD you can imagine. And I worked under the management of that store. I was a cashier. And, um, but they worked under the CEO, who some of us know. He's a billionaire, entrepreneur, tycoon, Richard Branson, who also owns a British airline. Yeah, you're wealthy if you can own a whole fleet of airlines that crisscross the world. And he also owns a space tourism company. So if you're looking to go out into outer space, contact his company and his spaceships will take you. But Branson was the owner. He was the one who determined what was sold in the store, what the philosophy and the direction of the store was. I didn't decide that. The employees didn't decide that. I did my job as I was instructed to. I agreed to uphold and represent the company to the best of my ability. But Branson, as the owner, he set the tone, the function, the purpose of the store. He's the one who created the store with his own hard work and his money and creative abilities. I did not dare call Richard Branson up and tell him how his store ought to be run. He told those under him, and then they told me, and I obeyed the store because I obeyed them because the store belonged to him, not me. Now, in a much, 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 much greater and eternally more significant manner, the church belongs to who? The living God. He is the sole proprietor. He is the truth. He is the one who, de who determines how we as his people believe, behave, confess, and conduct our lives. I, I don't get to come to an elder meeting and say, hey guys, I have a better, listen, I have a better, more effective way uh, to do church. Um, let's forget about what God's word says and let's apply my savvy ideas. Eh, no, never should happen. I did not shed my blood for Christ's church. I am not the one true living God and neither are you. <laughs> you as a born-again Christian have been engrafted, adopted, immersed into Christ's church by the mercies and grace of God. And there are household rules, so to speak, that all believers must abide by as members of his house, his church Again, the church is not a social club. We talked about this in the membership class yesterday. It's, it, it, it is not to act as it fancies, however it wants to. No, the basis of our conduct, the reason for the way we live is the church is God's church. I know I'm repeating myself a lot here, but we have to get this impressed into our minds indelibly because once we understand that this church belongs to God, that will then in turn affect how we live our lives as Christians. Because God is holy, we are to live holy. Paul uses this term household in chapter 3 in verses 4 and 5 of 1 Timothy. Uh, this isn't the first time Paul uses that term household uh, it's, it's one of his favorite terms that he uses to define the church of God. And he compares the household of God or the church of God to that of a family 
household, where expectations are held in high regard, just like in a family, right? There are set rules that a mother and a father put in place that the children are to obey. Children, obey your parents in everything according to the Lord. But as a caveat, and I I have to say this, but I think we all understand this, and again, we talked about this in the membership class yesterday. Obviously, the church is not a what? A building. This building, this structure, is a meeting place for the church to come and assemble and gather and worship and serve and hear the word of God. The church is not a four walls and it's not the roof. It's not brick and mortar. The church is you. The church is me. And when Paul uses that term household, it might seem like Paul is speaking of a literal building, a literal house, like we often hear someone might say, today we are in the house of God. Speaking of the building. Or I'm going to the church. Oftentimes people think of, I'm going to the building of the church. But rather, this term that Paul uses, household, has a much larger, more significant meaning. It has the idea of a family. A family that shares the same convictions and beliefs. A family that shares the same convictions and beliefs. It's ultimately the family that God the Father has elected and then sent his son to save those people who have been called into his family. Those who are regenerated, those who are sanctified, those who are justified, forgiven of their sins, those who are glorified, those who are heading to heaven when they leave this earthly body. These are those who are in Christ. These are those who have repented and put their faith in Jesus Christ. That is the church of the living God. This household is a spiritual family. It's not a physical building. And I understand that sometimes we speak of the church as a building. We're we're familiar with that kind of language but it's good to be clear about what exactly the church is and who it's made up of. Let's look at a few verses to help us understand this metaphor of building that Paul likes to um, utilize in his writings. Let's consider uh, 1 Corinthians 3.9. You don't have to go there unless you want to. You can write them down, I'll read them, and you can uh, Go back to them at another time. But 1 Corinthians 3, 9, Paul says, For we are God's fellow workers, speaking of him and Apollos, but you are God's field, God's building. He personalizes it. He says you are actually God's building. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6. Hebrews 3, 6. This is coming out of a longer discourse, but it says in Hebrews 3, 6, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence in the boast of our hope firm until the end. Again, it's his house and we are his house. 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 
Peter writes, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices accepted, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It's not just any house, but it's a spiritual house made up of people who are spiritual beings and had been created by God who dwells within us by his spirit. Galatians, end of Galatians, chapter 6. Galatians 6, verse 10. Helps us understand more clearly this idea of household. Paul writes there, So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. It's a household of the faith, household of the truth, household of the gospel, household, household of those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ. I like how the NIV puts it. Um, another way of translating it, instead of household of faith, which is more literal, the NIV says the family of believers. Paul also uses this metaphor of household in Ephesians. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 19. Paul is writing about the peace that was preached to those who were near, such as the Jews, and uh, peace to those who were afar off, the Gentiles, and how they are now under one roof called the church, and God saved them. Ephesians 2, 19 says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being lifted together is growing into a holy temple. He's using different pictures there in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. One more. Turn over to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, starting at verse 16. 2 Corinthians 6, starting at verse 16. Paul again writes, Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean and I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. What a rich, what a rich idea that we are God's holy temple in which his Holy Spirit dwells. As Paul utilizes these various metaphors of the church, such as building, household, temple, and family, it comes down to the fact that these things, these word pictures, illustrate that we are his people in whom he dwells. And as God's household, as his church his called out ones, as the word church means, ecclesia, his gathering of his people, we are to live in a manner that is consistent with our full-time identity as God's family, as his children. Because he is our heavenly father, we are brothers and sisters amongst each other in the family 
of God. And now that brings us to our second defining characteristic of the church. Our second defining characteristic of God's church. And that is, the church is a church that ought to conduct itself in a manner according to God's standards. It's a church that ought to conduct itself in a manner according to God's ways or standards. And so we see back in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, he says, I am writing these things to you. What are these things? These instructions. These are those that he has provided in the previous three chapters and that which he will provide in the following subsequent three chapters, four, five, and six. And even we see these things in the other pastoral epistles, 2 Timothy and Titus. He talks about these things in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, where Paul says, In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ. Verse 11 of chapter 4, prescribe and teach these things. Verse 15 of chapter 4, take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Chapter 5, verse 7, Paul said, prescribe these things as well so that they must be above reproach. In verse 21 of chapter 5 of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy, Paul says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these things or these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. We see this phrase, these things, even in 2 Timothy and in Titus. These things are not opinions. These things are not suggestions. They are commands. They are mandates. They are straight from the council room of God. And they are non-negotiable instructions that every Holy Spirit believer must abide by as God's family members. This is how the church of God must conduct itself back then and today. Now again, these are not legalistic burdens that Paul is laying out in order for us to achieve a special status with God or to receive salvation, for we all know that salvation is not by works, but by faith in Christ Jesus, by grace. But they are standards for already saved Christians rescued by the boundless mercies of God. Consider in the Old Testament when God rescued the Israelites from the bondage and slavery of Egypt. He rescued them first out of the tyrannical hands of Pharaoh. He redeemed them. He called them out of Egypt into the wilderness to the mountain. And then in Exodus 19, he calls them a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And then from Exodus 20 onward and in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, then and only then, as his chosen people, based on his love for them, he exhorts them to live and worship in a manner worthy of their status as God's chosen people. Similarly, with the church, God freely redeemed us, justified us by his grace through Jesus and not by works. 
right? Salvation is a free gift for anyone who repents and calls upon the name of the Lord and believes in who he is and what he has accomplished. But for those of us who are freely saved, we are to live lives that conform to our new special status as God's people, his church, his family members of his household. He is the Father. He is our Heavenly Father. And so what are these things about which Paul is speaking in 14 and 15? How are we to conduct ourselves in the household of God? How are we to live as his spiritual family, as those filled and given the Holy Spirit? Well, so far up to this point, Paul has informed Timothy of a number of areas that myself and the elders and Ronaldo have been taking us through in chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. In chapter 1, Paul instructed Timothy from the get-go to deal with the root of the problem, false teachers, false teachings that were penetrating the Ephesian church. Instruct them, those false teachers, not to teach certain doctrines, strange doctrines that are like leavening, can leaven the whole church and is like poisonous and can kill those who are in the church. False doctrine is a disease and must be rooted out. Why is that? Because the church is a church of truth. And erroneous doctrines and false teachers have no place in God's church which, as Paul says at the end of verse 15 of 1 Timothy 3, is the pillar and support of the truth. Likely there were Judaizers that were infiltrating the church, those who were commanding already saved Christians that they must obey the law of God to either be saved or sustain that salvation that you were given. This was a problem in Galatia. That's why Paul in chapter 1 had to, un, uh, to teach what the true nature and function and purpose of the law is. And Timothy had to tackle this because the church is a church of truth. First and foremost, the church is the pillar and support of the truth. Uh, this is paramount. We must get this. If there's anything that we understand that the church is outside of the fact that it belongs to God is that it is a church of truth. Because God is truth, his church must be the pillar and support of the truth. What is the truth? God is the God of truth. He's nothing but the truth because he is not a God who lies. Everything he says is pure and right and holy and true. Truth is is in Jesus Christ, Colossians. All wisdom and knowledge is found in Jesus Christ. John 14, 6, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The Bible, 2 Timothy three sixteen. because the word of God is God-breathed, the word of God is the word of truth. And thus the church is the pillar and support of the truth. Like pillars that support the structure of a building, so the church supports and upholds and maintains and defends and proclaims the truth. In the city of Ephesus during this time, Paul possibly could have been thinking about the grand temple that was devoted to Artemis, 
which had around 127 gold-plated pillars. I mean, to this day, if you go there, you can see the ruins of that temple. And Paul was maybe thinking of that while he told Timothy that it's really the church that is the pillar and support of the truth. As a real pillar holds up the structure of a building, the church holds up the truth of God. The church holds up the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and says, world, this is the truth. This is the gospel. This is what you need to know and believe and hold to. And again, as a warning, we have to understand that the church does not create truth. We don't have meetings where we said, well, what is the truth for us today? Some churches do that. The Roman church does that. We're not the source of the truth, okay? God is. The Bible is. Christ is. In other words, we do not determine. We don't make up the truth. God does. If there was no church, there would still be truth. God's truth would still exist. But the church, in a profound manner, supports, maintains, defends, and upholds the truth. You are a voice of truth. You are an ambassador of truth. You are a proclaimer of truth. You are a student of truth. And this is what the church is all about, the truth. The church must live as men and women, as boys and girls of the truth. We must be about the business of acquiring truth. I mean, that's one reason why we're seated here today, so that you would receive truth and know how to live and apply that truth and tell others about the truth. Again, many churches, sadly, nowadays, and even back then, have denounced the truth and have bought into the church things of the world, philosophies of the world, traditions of the world, fads of the world, rather than focusing on the exclusivity of God's truth. So many churches are rather purveyors of lies and deceit and the devil's schemes than they are of God's truth. We are not to be a church who is about the business of inventing foolish traditions of man. We have to stick to the body of truth, the body of faith. And that's why elders, shepherds, have to be those who not only rightly proclaim the truth and defend sound doctrine, but expose those things that do not come in accordance with the truth. The truth of God is a premium commodity we cannot live without as a church. We must guard it, defend it, because, as the Apostle John says in his letter, there are many false teachers, prophets, that have gone out into the world. And this world in which we live, as you all know, is dominated by lies, right? Turn on the news, open up a newspaper, go to the educational institutions, listen to politicians, and what do you have set before you but a ton of lies, a ton of deceitful scheming. And thus we have to surround ourselves with the truth because we are the pillar in support of the truth. There are endless doctrines of demons that Paul talks about in the next chapter that can gain access in the church. And Grace Community Fellowship, we must continue to be people of the truth. 
who loves, and that's one thing I love, that's why I'm here. <laughs> one of the reasons is that I can see that you are a people who love the truth and want to learn it and grow in it and, and apply it to your lives faithfully. A second aspect of these things that we must do to, in, in, in terms of our conduct as the church that goes with being pillars in support of the truth is that gospel of Jesus Christ must be front and center of our church. Again, I will talk about that more next week from verse 16. But look at Paul in chapters 1 and 2. He can't help but talk about the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and how it saved him, the chief of sinners. And it is the church who preaches that joyful news. How are people out in the world who are entrapped in sin going to know about how they can be saved unless the church is about the gospel? How are totally depraved sinners who have broken God's law and are doomed to judgment and in eternity in hell if they don't know about the one Savior who is the mediator between God and man, right? 1 Timothy 2, 5. Jesus Christ is that man and we must be those who preach the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul goes on in terms of these things in which we are to conduct ourselves. We must be people of prayer. There are so many churches that neglect prayer and depend more so on their ingenuity and their strength. But we as the church of God must be a praying people because it's to him we communicate and we hear from him through his word and he listens to and answers our prayers. Paul says in chapter 2, First of all, I urge that entreaties, prayers, petitions, thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and for all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. We must be a praying people. This is one of the things that we as the church of God ought to conduct ourselves in. Prayer, whether individually or corporately together. Paul continues in chapter 2 and he instructs about how men are to, in every place, pray and lift up holy hands without wrath and dissension. And then in verse 9, he talks about the conduct and roles of women, Christian women, in the church. He covers all his bases. Then as Ronaldo and the other elders have been so articulately talking about there are leaders in the church and there are expectations of leaders in the church, how they are to be qualified and men of character and godliness and elders are to be able to teach and deacons are to assist those elders and to serve the church and be men of godly holiness and integrity. In chapters 4 to 6, Paul will continue to provide things concerning how the church must conduct itself he will continue to warn about false teachers and doctrines uh, how the church ought to love each other and consider each other as brothers and sisters in christ how they are to serve the widows those who truly need financial help and care he will talk more about the life and conduct of timothy who was a past pastor and as a pastor he sets the tone for the rest of the church and how he lives 
And 2 Timothy and Titus will continue this same theme of church conduct. Grace, what we must understand as God's church is that it's how we conduct ourselves. This is not a code of conduct that we put on as we walk through those doors and then leave that conduct as we leave those doors and go out into the world and go into our workplaces and go home. This is the manner in which we should walk all the time as believers in Christ. And if you want to know how you as a believer ought to conduct yourself, you must go to the word of God. Thankfully, Paul wrote these things so that we're not walking in the dark and stumbling and fumbling and running into walls. We can know how to live as the household of God, transformed by the power of Christ through the power of his Holy Spirit. God is calling you to live like him in all godliness, in Christ-likeness, in holiness, in purity, in integrity. And this is something that we as the church of the living God ought never to become complacent in. This is not a secondary issue. What you believe, how you behave as the church of the living God is primary. And we must live this out wholeheartedly and diligently as we read and study God's word. And so this begs the question as we complete our time in these first few verses of our section here, and we'll continue with it next week. The question is, how are you conducting yourself as a member of God's church, as a member of God's family? How am I doing so? Is the truth central in your life because you won't know how to live in accordance with God's ways, God's ways unless you know the truth? Is the gospel primary in your life? Do you live as one who believes the gospel for you and what Christ has accomplished for you? Do you live as one who tells others about the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you worship God? Do you follow Christ? Do you pray to God regularly as Paul urged us to do? Are you living lives of holiness depending on the grace of God to do so? Are you submitting to the loving leadership that, that God has determined in his church? Are you serving God's people in a loving and sacrificial way? How are you conducting yourself in the household of God, the church of the living God? Or do you consider yourself as a free agent, so to speak, a, a self-governing, I-do-things-my-way type of Christian? Well, if that's the case, we need to remember to whom we belong. We belong to the God who shed his blood for us. You belong to his church. You belong to his family. And there are expectations for you as his beloved family member whom he has saved. And even as we were talking about in Hebrews 12 this morning, as a son, as a daughter who is in Christ, as his family member, remember if you are veering off that course of conduct, God will lovingly and caringly discipline us to bring us on track because he cares for us. We must never forget that this church is God's church and he makes the rules. He determines the truth because of who he is and what he has accomplished 
as the well-known hymn says, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord, the church. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her and for her life he died. He sent his son to die for us. Let's be certain we know it is his church and that because he died for us, can you and I do anything less than live our lives for him as the household of God, the pillar and support of the truth? It's a high and holy privilege to be a part of his church. And let's conduct our lives in a manner that is fitting with what he has laid out in his word. And I must say, today, if you are not a member of God's household, if you recognize today that you are not a part of his family, that you have not been adopted as his child, that you are still in your sin and recognize that the blood of Christ has not washed and cleansed you, well, today is that day when you can repent and turn to Christ in faith as a sinner who will, he will, wash you, cleanse you, forgive you of all your sins, past, present, and future. He will welcome you with open arms like the father welcomed the prodigal son who ran to him. And, and there will be angels rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. And you will be welcomed in his, into his household, not for a short amount of time, not for just a period of time, but for eternity. For God sent his only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Today is the day to repent and put your trust in him and you will be a part of this family, this household, this church of the living God about which Paul speaks in 1 Timothy. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have your word of truth. We thank you that we as the church we are the pillar and support of the truth. We thank you that this church belongs to you and you are the owner, you are the builder, you are the architect, you are the Lord of all and Savior of us. And we thank you that we have been graciously brought into and rescued and, and lovingly adopted into your family. Help us, Lord, as your children to live in a way that is upright, and conducting our lives in this world as holy people of God, depending on you and your spirit and your word and each other to live in a way that brings glory to you and pleases you. Help us to put these things in practice about which Paul taught Timothy. Thank you, Lord, for the church. And thank you for dying for us, shedding your blood so that we may know you and be reconciled and have eternal life and forever be a part of your family. And it's in Christ's name that we all pray. Amen.